0: If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 10 in the series, James, forgetting your own face. This teaching is written by me, Cameron, and read by Josh Porter. Jacob ends his letter by speaking to the lived experience of his audience: suffering, courage, sickness, sin, and loss of faith. And through it all, Jacob weaves prayer, healing, forgiveness, and restoration. It's a picture of a world gone awry and God's kingdom breaking into the here and now. Cameron writes, (laughs) I love ethical dilemmas. Actually, let me rephrase that. I enjoy discussing hypothetical ethical dilemmas. The absurdity of the scenarios is incredibly entertaining. Then you have the popular ethical dilemma of the runaway trolley car. Now, if you don't know this uh, dilemma, the trolley car, in theory, is racing toward five people that are tied down on the tracks. You're standing there, and you have a lever that will switch the tracks, But on the other set of tracks, three people are tied down. So you have to make a quick decision. Those are your only choices. Which one will you choose? Or... Here's another predicament. If you ascribe to nonviolence, then you're bound to have heard some iteration of the ethical dilemma. But what would you do if someone broke into your house and tied up your family and held them at gunpoint? Would you just let them kill your family? Or the scenario that kept getting used in ethics class when I took seminary ethics. What if you were in Nazi Germany and you were hiding Jewish fugitives in your house? The Gestapo knock on your door, and when you answer it, they ask you if you have any Jews hiding in your home. What do you do? Lie for the sake of the innocent people in your home or tell the truth. Cam writes, I like these ethical dilemmas in part because of the cognitive dissonance they can bring and the rationale a person has for trying to maintain all of their values in the face of the presented dilemma. But really, hypothesizing about what we choose to do doesn't necessarily translate to what we would actually do. We can't really know that until we find ourselves driving a runaway trolley that is barreling towards people tied to the tracks. It's not until we live in the tension, the unknowns, the pressure, that we know what we'll choose to do. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Tonight is the conclusion of our line-by-line study of Jacob's letter. And we have our work cut out for us tonight. If you've been following along as we've made our way through this letter, you'll be surprised, or unsurprised rather, to know that Jacob, the author of the letter, does not end his letter with a whimper. There's a lot in the last few verses. Before we dive into the text, though, we need to keep some things in mind that will help us navigate what we have to say. Now, Jacob, the author of James, was a Jewish man steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He was also the half-brother of Jesus and was also steeped in the teachings of his brother, whom he came to believe was not just teacher, but Lord. Both of those influences, the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus as his half-brother, are woven together throughout the letter, whether explicitly or implicitly now A text like Isaiah 65, for example, was something that held out hope for someone like Jacob and the Jewish people as a whole under the oppression of the Roman Empire. That's along with an ongoing economic catastrophe in the form of an extensive famine at the time of the letter's writing. Jacob would have been very familiar with these words from Isaiah. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by Yahweh, they and their descendants with them, before they call, I will answer, while they're still speaking, I will hear, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. This longing for God's rule and reign to bring about new creation was captured in this idea of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. When would God bring his authority in totality to all creation, to his people, who were suffering. And Jacob would have been well aware that his brother, Jesus, was going around declaring that the kingdom of God was, in Jesus' words, at hand. This ended up getting Jesus into trouble, since most people understood him to mean kingdom of God as a geopolitical concept, one that in theory would rival and ultimately overthrow the Roman Empire. This happened even though Jesus had interactions like this one from Luke 17. Once being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come again, think in geopolitical terms. When will the regime change? Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus had the audacity to claim that the kingdom of God was already here. But the picture that Isaiah paints, the one that I just read, and the one that we're living in today, as was the case in the first century, they don't seem to match. On the surface, there seems to be a dissonance between Isaiah and Jesus. But really, it's an understandable reality when you grasp how the scriptures view God's response to the rebellion and marring of his creation and how he's going to save it. Jesus, the early church, and people like Jacob were very comfortable with the idea that the kingdom of God is both here and it's not all the way here yet. There's an overlapping of time, beginning with Jesus all the way through today. In theology, it's what's called inaugurated eschatology. The kingdom of God and his healing and his renewal are here, but they're not fully here yet. Jacob uses farming imagery to communicate this idea in his letter. He wrote to Jewish Christians back in chapter 1. If you remember, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In other words, followers of Jesus are the first fruits of this in-breaking kingdom of God. The letter Jacob wrote calls his audience and us 2,000 years later, to live as the first, rich, sweet taste of God's coming kingdom, here and yet to be realized in full. So with all that in mind, we come to tonight's text as Jacob teaches how a church, a community of Jesus followers, lives in that tension between the now and the not yet kingdom of God. Would you guys stand as a gesture of respect toward the reading of scriptures? They will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Verse 19, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thanks, guys. Sam goes on to write, with economic disaster bearing down on these Christians that Jacob is writing to with social pressure, with ethnic tension, with religious intolerance, he writes this, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. So two things to keep in mind here. Jacob most likely isn't referring to people who have it hard and people who have it easy. Sure, there was probably... A sliding scale of suffering and ease, but most everyone to some extent would have been feeling the pinch of economic, social, ethnic, and religious pressure. So they're all kind of in the same boat. That's important to understand because it highlights two different reactions to the same exact situation. Some people were struggling, and some people were persevering in good spirits despite the same situation. Both people are encouraged to pray. For the one struggling through it all, that's self-explanatory. You want to pray. But for the one in good spirits, despite the same situation, their prayer prayer is to take the form of gratitude and praise through songs and music, worship, that kind of thing. Now that might be the least controversial thing Jacob has written in his letter. However, you are processing your situation. Pray. Draw near to God. That's basic enough. Good advice. And if he would have ended his letter here, we would have been done for the night. But, he goes on, "...is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven." So there's a lot Jacob is saying here and stuff that kind of grates against some people's experiences in the church, things like healing prayer, sin, sickness. So if you feel yourself having a semi or strong reaction to the words Jacob has written here, take a deep breath and let's just work through this to see what he means by all this. We'll be spending most of the rest of this teaching sorting through those two verses. Once we do that, the other things Jacob has to say will I think fall into place and make more sense for us. So first... Is anyone among you sick? Now that word sick uh, that Jacob used can refer to physical or mental illness, or it can refer to spiritual weakness. So in a broad kind of junk drawer term, it refers to frailty and neediness that a person is basically not doing well. And let me tell you, it would make my job, Cam says, (laughs) a lot easier tonight to tell you that all that Jacob meant was spiritual weakness and spiritual sickness. Because then we could spiritualize everything and, and then move on. It wouldn't mess with our materialistic worldview and it would avoid some of the abuses that people have perpetuated from these words. It would sidestep doubts about God's existence or his activity in the world. But... Jacob chose to use a Greek word that is very physically oriented. It's the frailty and weakness of existing in a physical, mortal body. At times, it can be used in a purely spiritual context, but very rarely so. So if you are sick... Weak, struggling in your mortality and frailty. Call the elders or overseers of the church to come around you and to pray over you. Now, if you haven't noticed, verses 13 and 14 are very individual-centric. If you are in trouble or if you are in good spirits, if you are sick, Jacob is empowering the individual to act in response to whatever circumstances you find yourself in. If you're sick, if you're in need, call the elders or overseers of the church to pray over you. Now, the anointing of oil thing might sound weird to us, but for Jacob, the anointing of oil is a physical representation of setting someone apart for God. This practice is uh, echoed from the story of Israel. Consecrated priests for work in the temple would be anointed with oil, which set them apart for God's work. Uh, anointing oil is also a physical representation or a symbol of the Spirit's presence with a person. Remember, God is an artist. He is the artist. So metaphors, symbolism matters deeply to God. Scholar Doug Moo explains it like this. He wrote, as the elders pray for the sick person, they also set that person apart for God's special attention. So that's what that anointing of oil symbol means. It's a powerful, powerful visual metaphor. The oil is a physical representation of setting apart the sick person for God's special attention. It's one of the ways uh, physical symbols are used to draw us near to God. Another would be the bread and the cup of communion or baptism is another great example. The scene that Jacob is creating is one of a person who's sick or weak. They call the elders or the overseers of the church, those who have responsibility to shepherd the people of the church to come and pray over them for healing. The overseers come. They anoint the person with oil as a physical symbolic act of setting the sick person apart for God's special work. And then they lay hands on the sick person and they pray for healing. And Jacob writes, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So the prayer works apparently. The person is healed. Their sins are forgiven. That's it. In all seriousness, this verse can bring up three hard questions when healing doesn't happen. And yes, we all know that it doesn't always happen. First question, did I not have enough faith? Second, is it the sick person's fault? Or three, is God good or real at all? Cam writes that he has prayed for healing for many people throughout his time at City. I've anointed people with oil and prayed for healing at the gathering, at homes, in the ER. My father-in-law, five years ago, was diagnosed with liver cancer. His liver was shot from decades of dealing with hepatitis C. His only hope, from a medical perspective anyway, was for a liver transplant. Now, as a family, we prayed over him on quite a few occasions for complete healing. We also prayed for him to be on the transplant list. We prayed that he would be matched with a donor. And then a tumor developed on his liver in just the wrong place, and that cancerous lump immediately disqualified him as a candidate for a liver transplant. Too doomed, they said. And so we continued to pray for healing. We prayed for the tumor to be healed. And one evening, a number of people from Van City laid hands on him in the basement of a church building and spent time praying for healing." The next report was a very good one. That tumor was miraculously, we believe, by the grace of God, and to the surprise of the doctors gone. But even so, he died five years ago this November. Did he die? Because we lacked faith. Because I lacked faith. It's good for us to hold in our minds that often when we read faith, we are conditioned by our culture to think of the certainty or confidence of our intellectual beliefs. Faith is not divorced from what we believe, but it is so much stronger, such a bigger concept than just what you believe in your head. Douglas Mood defines faith, as James uses it here, as, and I quote, wholehearted, unwavering commitment. I think that that is an excellent definition, which means we do have a part to play in the equation. Unfortunately, just as I can be a conduit for God's Spirit healing someone, I am also able to hinder healing by my lack of faith or my lack of commitment to Jesus. It's easy to want to downplay that or to overemphasize it and make it the only equation. Nuance, and transition is very difficult. So if it's not me, is it the sick person's fault? Jacob mentioned sins being forgiven. Do they have sin in their lives, and they haven't given them up, and that's why they don't get better? Can sin make you sick? Is the sickness itself the sick person's fault? So let's try to untangle this. The scriptures Treat humans holistically, meaning a human being is a mind, they are a body, and they are a soul. You are not simply a soul trapped inside a temporary corporeal physical form, and you are not merely a mind puppeteering a sack of flesh. Those are his words, not mine, but I, I really like that. <laughs> You are not simply trillions of cells reacting to outside stimuli in the cause and effect cycle. You and I are all of those things, mind body, soul, all of them interconnected. That's how God created us. That's also why, in the scriptures, final salvation isn't just us disembodied as spirituals in a faraway place called heaven. It is a physical bodily resurrection on earth that has been renewed by King Jesus. So if you have chronic physical pain— How has that affected your mental health? My guess is that it affects it drastically. How has it affected your spiritual health? I suspect the answer is the same. If you have chronic mental health issues, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, how have those things affected your spiritual health? I would guess in a significant way. Your physical health, how do they make you feel in your body? Again, these things are all interconnected. And if you, are a spiritual, if you are spiritually hurting, desperate, or confused, how has that affected your mental health? How does that affect your body? We are, in other words, interconnected, mind, body, and soul. And here's the kicker. According to the story of the scriptures, sin is holistically destructive, for human beings, physically, mentally, and spiritually, not to mention socially and environmentally. It doesn't just wreak havoc on us. It wreaks havoc on the world around us. Now, as far as I know, Nobody is quite sure how my father-in-law got hep C, but there's two good candidates. In his much younger years, he used drugs in an era when dirty drug needles were a primary vehicle for the disease and they weren't wholly understood or in the general populace's awareness. He could have gotten hep C from a contaminated drug needle. Or there was the time he was nearly stabbed to death during a drug deal gone wrong. The doctors were barely able to save his life by giving him blood transfusions, blood that could have likely been uh, that most likely had not been screened for hep C. Now, both scenarios from where he got hep C revolve around his destructive choices, and he would have told you this. He spoke at length about it. His sin, in other words. Sin affects not just your soul, but your mind and your body as well. If not in some kind of direct spiritual transaction, then through the, uh, the consequences of your decisions, So can sin that you choose to do make you sick? Yes, it can. The pop culture belief in Jacob's context about 2,000 years ago was that if you were ill or frail or weak, then it was always because you sinned and it was always your fault. And Jacob, who was steeped in the Old Testament and Jesus' teachings, was aware of that pop culture belief in his day. He knew that it was wrong, that it was bad theology, that it was not reflective of reality or the story of the Scriptures. And he tears it down with one word in verse 15. Look down. The word is simply this, if. Now, he's talking about people that are sick. And he says, if They have sinned, they will be forgiven. In other words, they might be sick and had not sinned at all. If they are sick because of their own sin, God heals them holistically. Just because you're sick doesn't mean you have caused the illness by your sin. You can be sick without having caused the sickness by your own sin. But if you are sick because you have sinned, God will take care of that too. Jacob specifically says the Lord will raise them up. The picture that phrase can draw up is Jesus healing someone, taking them by the hand, helping them to rise up out of their sickbed, healed and made whole. The Lord Jesus will raise them up. He will take them by the hand and make them well. But still, what if healing doesn't happen? It's not the fault of the person praying for the healing. and It's not the fault of the person in need of healing. Is it God's fault? Is God uncaring? Or is there no God at all? Maybe all those prayers of healing just hit the ceiling and evaporate into thin air, unable to reach some kind of creator God who could respond because there is no creator God. And Jacob, a man steeped in the Old Testament and Jesus' teachings, doesn't see healing as some type of scientific proof of God's existence nor as non-healing, as some type of proof of God's non-existence. He doesn't see this prayer for healing as some sort of cosmic vending machine. Insert a prayer of faith, make sure there's oil on it, and out comes the healing with some forgiveness just in case you did something wrong. Jacob sees healing as as an expression of the kingdom of God, the renewal of heaven and earth breaking into the here and now. It's pushing back illness and frailty and weakness. The healing and forgiveness are a foretaste of God's coming kingdom, which one day will be realized in full over all creation. Sometimes the kingdom does break into the here and now. I have seen it with my own eyes, incredible, miraculous things that I truly believe could not have possibly happened without the intervention of God himself, and I have seen prayers that do not result in the prayer being answered the way we asked it to be answered. But Jacob chose his words well. He said, the Lord will raise them up. Now, that can be a picture of Jesus helping someone to their feet, someone healed and made whole, but it can also be an allusion to the physical and bodily resurrection. It's like Jacob is saying, you pray for them in faith, and one way or another, Jesus will raise them up. Remember, all healing this side of resurrection is temporary. Cam writes, I really miss my father-in-law. I knew him for nine years. I knew my biological dad for about seven years. My father-in-law was committed to Jesus. My biological dad was objectively not. It would have been really helpful if Jesus would have healed my father-in-law. I wish he was still alive. I wish my two girls were able to know their grandpa. Towards the end of his life, we spent an evening gathered around him as he lay in his hospice bed that was parked in the living room. He was barely conscious. I don't remember him being able to communicate with anyone. And Tab, one of the overseers here at Van City, who also leads worship, he came over that evening with a guitar. And as a group, we sang songs of praise to Jesus and we lamented and cried and we prayed again for healing. And then we spent time listening to God's spirit. My father-in-law died a few days after that. But that evening, in the turmoil of emotions and grief and songs and prayer, I felt the Spirit bring into my mind's eye a picture of my father-in-law standing alongside Jesus, whole, bright-eyed, healthy-looking, full of joy, pumping his fists in celebration, a stark contrast to his frail, weak body in the hospice bed. And I was comforted. It still comforts me. And the Lord will "'raise them up.'" God's kingdom is not yet fully here, so people die. Healing does not always happen. Remember, there are other wills at work in the world. You have a say, I have a say. Spiritual beings in the spiritual realm, what we would call angels and demons, have a say. And because God dignifies us with freedom and autonomy, we often get our way. The result is sin, the world is broken, and not every prayer is answered the way God would have it answered. But at some point, that will not be the case anymore. God's kingdom is coming, and the healing that does happen in the here and now reminds us of that beautiful coming future reality. No, we're not quite done with this letter yet, but we're close. Look down at verse 16 before we end. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, our attention when we read this is likely drawn to Jacob's words about confession, that whole confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Maybe images of like the Catholic confession booth come to mind, a priest waiting for a list of sins so that you can be cleared and go on your way. Or maybe this idea of confession sits heavy on your mind, so heavy in fact that you'd like nothing more than for me to move on, he writes, than for Cam to move on. It reminds you of that thing that you do or that thing that you have done, and it's that fear of being exposed, the shame, the humiliation, the hurt, or maybe it's the feeling of being pressured to have some sort of emotional quasi-spiritual experience around certain bad behaviors that were considered especially egregious. You need to feel bad, you need to be sorry, and then you need to feel forgiven by God whatever comes to our minds about confession, Jacob's point is really about prayer. Prayer in the context of sin and forgiveness. And he brings up Elijah. So there are many stories Jacob could have referenced from the Old Testament, many other stories from Elijah's life. Go read them. They're bananas. About healing people. But he chose this particular story, which was about a famine. Israel had been um, determinedly separated itself from its covenant relationship with God. Years and decades and generations passed and the chasm between Israel and God kept getting wider. A new king, a particularly unjust one, ascended to the throne and sped up this widening process exponentially. Israel was in ever-deepening rebellion against God and Elijah, as a prophet of God, prayed for and used a famine to call Israel back to God. If you will, the land was sick, And weak under this famine, this famine was tied to Israel's sin. You hear all those same concepts echoed in Jacob's writing. After three and a half years, Israel, with Elijah's help, repented of their sin. They turned back to God. Elijah prays, rain comes, putting an end to the famine, and the land was healed. Now, part of what it means to be the people of God in the now and not yet of this kingdom is to be a conduit of God's healing and forgiveness, Theologian and Bible scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. Prayer isn't just me calling out in the dark to a distant or unknown God. It means what it means and does what it does because God is, as James promised, very near to those who draw near to him. Heaven and earth meet when in the Spirit Someone calls on the name of the Lord. And it means what it means and does what it does because God's new time has broken into the continuing time of this sad old world. So that the person praying stands with one foot in the place of trouble, sickness, and sin, and the other foot in the place of healing, forgiveness, and hope. Prayer brings the latter to bear on the former. Jacob ends his letter with one more scenario, one more way we can be people, we can stand with one foot in one place of trouble, sickness, and sin, and with the other foot in the place of healing, forgiveness, and hope. He writes, If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Interestingly enough, Jacob, who many consider... Authored one of the most intense letters in the New Testament ends the letter with an encouragement to participate in bringing those who have wandered from their faith back to faith in Jesus. Now, we're going to be talking about that a lot in the fall, in the coming weeks, but in general, we can acknowledge the profound goodness that there is in helping people come back to faith in Jesus. And my guess is every single person in this room knows a person or people or knows of a person or people who have wandered from faith in Jesus. So rather than kind of jeering at their failure or having a faux celebration of their expression of so-called authenticity for deconstructing, we can participate in God's in-breaking kingdom by seeing someone turn from sin and come back to faith and faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Now, that was a ton to get through. But remember this, the Bible is a story. And within that story, there are all sorts of genres of literature. You have poetry, teaching, history. There's even a genre we don't have anymore called apocalyptic. Some scholars think that books like Job might have been something like a play. But most of that Bible is narrative. And the entire thing is altogether one big narrative, That's really interesting because the letter that we've been studying over the last few weeks isn't narrative, it's a letter written to a people in a time and place, and yet it is not disconnected or distant from the entire story of the scriptures. This letter and its author and its audience are deeply intertwined and aware of the story of God that we read cover to cover in the scripture. It cannot be separated from the story. N.T. Wright says this, James is constantly aware of living within a story, living, in fact, within God's story, and of the fact that this story has already reached its climax in his brother Jesus, and will one day complete what he had so solidly begun. You and I are also living in this story, And if there's one thing that Jacob was incredibly consistent with throughout this letter, it's been the call to live as followers of Jesus with integrity. To live as followers of Jesus who are a part of the story of God. As if we have one foot in the here and now, and also one foot in the coming kingdom of God. It's like Choosing to pray no matter what the circumstances, to allow the church, our brothers and sisters, into our weakness and frailty and sickness. It looks like asking for prayer and allowing ourselves to be set apart for special attention from God when we need it most. It looks like praying for other people, prayers of faith of seeing Jesus raise people up and to have the humility to confess sin to one another so that we can be forgiven and healed. Confessing sin, praying in line with our commitment to Christ for one another, and receiving God's healing because we know we need it. It looks like seeing those who are walking away from Jesus with love and compassion and conviction, willing to call them back to the King who provides forgiveness and healing and restoration. Ultimately, the question is, are you going to choose to participate in this thing we call faith, church, and community? to stand as a conduit for God's healing kingdom coming in the here and now? Or would you rather sit on the sidelines or maybe sit in the shadows, hiding in plain sight? It can be easy to fool those around us. I think most of us know that well. It can be easy to fool ourselves. Or maybe you're all in already. You're here. You're going for it. Are you willing to be stretched and challenged? Are you willing to pray with a wholehearted commitment to Jesus for healing on the behalf of others? Are you ready to confess your sins to the appropriate people around you? Are you ready to receive with compassion and wisdom the confession of those around you? Are we ready to embrace the tension of the now and not yet kingdom without being undone by it? It could look like failure, sin, Confusion, sickness, even death, prayers that seem unanswered, situations where it seems that God doesn't care or isn't here at all. But it will also look like hope and peace and love and forgiveness and healing. It will look like participating with God in moments where his kingdom appears as bones are mended and sickness is cured and reconciliation against all odds happens, your life and my life, as a kind of rich foretaste of God's kingdom coming. Let's pray and ask that it would be so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.